<laughs> uh, please open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 2 we're in. We'll read 11 through 18 just to get the flow. Our main focus, as was stated earlier, is verses 14 through 18. And in this text, uh, he's going to focus on the unity between the Jew and the Gentile in the church. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 18. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Finally, 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. In one spirit to the Father. So here Paul speaks again of the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church. The former hostility is gone. Peace is made not only between Jew and Gentile, but between all of mankind and, more importantly, with God, between all mankind and God. So there's peace amongst Jews and Gentiles, there's peace amongst all mankind, and there's peace between all mankind and God through Jesus Christ. Okay? Outside of Christ, there is no peace. But in Christ, there's peace for all of those people mentioned. As we said, that this is through the cross that this happens. And through Christ, both Jew and Gentile as we read in verse 18, have equal access to God through Christ Jesus. Now, we broke this up last week, this passage, verse 11 through 22, into three headings, if you would, or main points. We said that verses 11 through 13 is the need of reconciliation, and we looked at that last week. This week is verses 14 through 18. We said that's the means of reconciliation, or the how. And verse 19 through 22 is the fruit of reconciliation or the the result of reconciliation. So the need of reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, and the fruit of reconciliation. Verses 11 through 22. Now, to get our thoughts here. Since the fall of man, since Genesis 3, when sin entered into the human race, self-love, self-promotion, self-exaltation is the rule of the human existence. And since the fall, since self-love and self-promotion and self-exaltation is the rule, this of course leads to malice, to envy, to jealousies, to hatred between people. And this characterizes human history, not only historically, but even now presently. And if I can remind you of what Paul wrote in Titus chapter 3, Verse 2, I believe it is verse 3. Listen to what he writes here in Titus 3, 3. 
He says, For we were also once foolish ourselves. And he's talking to believers in Christ. And he says, also once. So before conversion, he's saying. And he concludes himself, a Jew, with all Gentiles. So all people were once foolish ourselves. He goes on to describe us before conversion. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice, in envy, hateful, hating one another. So that's the characteristic of the human race outside of Christ right there. There is hatred for different ethnicities. There's, there's hatred because someone's of a different color, of a different nation, of a different religion, a different sports team. We're, just, we're built for hatred before Christ and outside of Christ. That's just the nature and the legacy of sin. The fallen human heart, follow now please, is so thoroughly corrupted and enslaved to sin... It can do nothing but sin. In addition to that, that's who we are by nature, outside of Christ, the whole world lies under the influence or the sway of the evil one. The evil one, of course, is the devil. He's called in Scripture the God of this age. He moves people. He influences people. He tempts people towards evil, which is already our natural disposition. He tempts us toward hatred. He tempts us toward malice. And this is and has been the norm for humanity since Genesis 3. Sinners are alienated from each other and, more importantly, from God. As the world abandons God, God abandons them to themselves. It's important to see Romans 1, please. So turn, if you would, to Romans 1. All this is obviously laying the, the groundwork of how inc- incredible is reconciliation. Romans chapter 1. We'll pick it up there. And you're, I'm sure we're familiar with this text. But this is where Paul is describing the human race before conversion as a result of the sin God gave them over in 24, God gave them over in 26, and then verse 28, notice the focus here in verse 28, chapter 1 of Romans. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over, notice, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, verse 30, slanders, haters of God, not lovers of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. You can stop there. That's dirty enough. <laughs> right? That's the human dilemma. That's outside of Christ, as a result of the fall, the result of sin's entrance into the human race, the human is so corrupted and also under the influence of the devil. And when you turn your back on God and turn away from God, He lets you go to your own devices. That's what we just saw there. Okay? So no wonder the world is what it is. No wonder it's so full of wars and hatred. Um, it's, I think we should be more surprised that it's not worse. And it's God's restraining grace that it's not worse. Okay, now there's 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 more to this that 
that which I just described as the human dilemma, from out of this cesspool of fallen humanity, God, in Genesis 12, chose Abram for himself, okay? To be the father of a new nation. This was through his son Isaac, which would then be the promise of God would be through Isaac's son Jacob, who would later be called Israel, okay? God created a new people. He set them apart from all other people on the planet, but they were brought out of the cesspool. They're still of the cesspool, okay? There's no virtue in the Jew that moved God to choose him, okay? He just decided to because of his good pleasure. He set them apart from all other people. He gave them distinct laws of morality and of everyday life, for instance, dietary laws, Sabbath laws, Okay, why did he give those? To separate Israel from all the nations around them, to make them distinct, okay? Even though they're of the same character as all the nations around them, but he chose them out for himself. He gave them laws not only for everyday life to separate them, but he gave them laws for worship. Remember, they're only to worship Yahweh and no other gods. And he gave them the, the, the law of which to follow to worship. Don't do it any other way. These laws kept the Jews separate from all others. In fact, in the temple, if you remember, the Gentiles were allowed into the temple, but only so far. Right? There was a wall, a barrier that kept them from going into the holy place. That was only reserved for Jews who were in right standing, okay? who weren't unclean ceremonially. So the Gentiles were allowed in the temple to worship God, but they were kept back behind the Jews in the Old Covenant, Old Testament. Okay. Even though they're both of the cesspool I just described in Romans 1. Okay. Now, from the, that's the court of the Gentiles where that wall is that separates them. You know that archaeology has found an inscription that said, no Gentiles pass this part, part or be killed. Right? They'd be put to death. Okay. That was the penalty. So in addition to this, to the Mosaic Law, that's what we just described there, that, that separates Jew and Gentile, the Mosaic Law, that separation, by the time first century comes, it was before, but it really came to the surface in the first century, many, if not most of the Jews, misinterpreted God's choice of them. They did not see it as grace, but they saw it as a sign of their superiority to all other races. Okay? And of course, this fueled a self-righteous pride, as it would, if you misinterpret that, and produced a contempt between them and the Gentiles. And of course, the Gentiles, in response, had contempt for the Jews. Okay? But the Jews became self-promoted and so prideful because they thought God's choice of them was based on their superiority. Okay? There's some Christians that act that way, too, and they think that God chose them because of how wonderful they are. It's not because of that, okay? <laughs> um, so then, here is the first. In oh, where I lost my place, lost my place. Um, this is a, they thought this is a sign of their superiority, and of course this fueled their self righteous pride and produced a contempt amongst the races there, the, the between the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, if you would go to Acts chapter ten, please. There's a great example of this dilemma between Jews and Gentiles, but it also is a great example of where God reveals that there is uh, an advancement in His original plan. 
It's not new to God. It's new to us. But he reveals this newness to Peter. And in Acts 10, here's the first Gentile Christian, the first Gentile conversion recorded in Acts chapter 10. God, think of this now, God chose this centurion, this Gentile centurion, whose name is Cornelius. God chose him to be saved before the foundation of the world. We know that. He also chose the Jewish apostle Peter to be the messenger. Okay? The dilemma is obvious. In order to overcome the obstacle, Peter going to a Gentile, God reveals to Peter the next stage in this plan of redemption. If you're in chapter 10, I, just, I want to pick it up in verse 11, read down through verse 16, and then we'll bleed off probably towards chapter 11. But in chapter 10, verse 11, he, he starts with this. And he saw a sky opened up. This is Peter's vision. And an object like a sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came from to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, notice how Peter responds because he's thinking according to the Old Covenant. He says in 14, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Well, obviously, he's responding to the dietary laws of the Mosaic Law. That God said it's unclean, okay? And if God says it's unclean, then it's unclean, okay? So that's what he's responding to. And he says, Lord, I, I've never transgressed those dietary laws. But look, look at what happens in the next verse, 15. And a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. So far, right, it's animals coming down. Dietary law. God has brought about new revelation in verse 15. God now has cleansed that which he formerly called unclean. Okay? Now, is God concerned about their diet? I don't think so. Right? This is a change because the dietary law is showing you that it had a spiritual, farther, deeper meaning than just what you ate in the Old Covenant. Okay, Look at what he says. Verse 15, a voice came a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. 16, this happened three times, to get the point across. Right? And immediately, the object was taken into the sky. Wow. So this stuns a Jew who's under Old Covenant. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. you got Gentiles now coming, being sent by God to the Jewish apostle Peter. Before they got there, God gave the vision to Peter to reveal to him, no longer call, don't call the Gentiles unclean anymore. We're going to see it applied here, right? But now God has called the Gentiles clean. They're no longer classified in the old covenant way. Okay, all right. When you get down here to, um, since Peter's convinced of this vision, look at verse 25, if you will, of chapter 10. When Peter entered, this is Cornelius' house now, and all his family members there and friends. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. Right? I too am just a man. 
Peter's not the first pope, by the way, because he would have received that. <laughs> 27 says there, right? As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. 28, and he said to them, you yourselves, look at this now, know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner, a Gentile, or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Isn't that fascinating? That the vision in the sheets of the animals, he is interpreting here in verse 29 what God cleansed as it related to the animals, it literally was meaning the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are no longer considered unclean, which means Jews now can associate with Gentiles. Jews, Peter, can go into a house of a Gentile and not be considered unclean by God. Okay? My point is, the Old Covenant made those hard separation. The Old Covenant put a wall, right, between Jew and Gentile. Okay. Um... Look at verse uh, 29. That is why I came without even raising any objection. Peter's convinced by this. When I was sent for. sent for. So I asked for what reason have you sent for me? The rest of the chapter, Peter preaches Christ and God saves the Gentiles. Okay. All right. Now when you come to chapter 11, please. This news of Gentiles coming to the Jewish Messiah caught the attention of other Jewish people, as you could imagine. Right? And in chapter 11, you see again the contempt of the Jews or the old covenant's barriers. Look at 1 through 3. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, Jewish took issue with him, as they would, right? Look at verse 3. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? What kind of Jew are you? You can't not do that, right? You're now unclean. You can't go in the temple and worship. You have to offer sacrifice. All of that. Peter goes on in the rest of this chapter to give details of what happened there and the conversion. I want to go all the way to verse uh, 15 of chapter 11. And finish this out. Look at here. In verse 15, this is as he was speaking, verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as, same way, he did upon us at the beginning. That's back in Acts chapter 2. Okay? So just as the Jews received the Spirit, so too the Gentiles have received the same Spirit. Verse 16, And I remembered the word of the Lord, and how He used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice this. Both Jew and Gentile have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, according to this verse, the believers. Verse 17, Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us, Jews, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Verse 18, finally, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also, in addition to the Jews, the repentance that leads to life. Okay? Very clear. Very clear. Um, the emphasis then is on the unity, as we see here, the same gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no more distinctions. Okay? Um, it's a shared experience in Christ Jesus. 
All the world distinctions are gone. All the, the, the barriers of the old covenant are gone. There is a oneness in Christ's church, a unity um, between Jew and Gentile and all groups through Jesus Christ. The only question, the only distinction now is, are you in Christ or out of Christ? That's the only distinction right, that matters. Either you're in Christ or you're out of Christ. In other words, either you're a Christian or you're not. Okay? Either a child of God or you're not. You're either in the church, spiritually as we know, or you're not. All those things, those are the distinctions. Um, so then, go to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to go rapid fire through here. Look at verse 28. Different context, same principle, same teaching though. Notice here that verse 27 and 28. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, okay, all of you who were baptized, placed into Christ, spiritual union with Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay? And if you remember Galatians at all, you had Judaizers saying to Gentiles, you need to become Jewish in order to be Christians. He says, no, in Christ, you're already a Christian. You're already acceptable to God. And you are all one in Christ. Okay. Go to Colossians 3, please. Just a little bit to the right. Colossians 3. Paul speaks to this truth many times. I just want to show you, read it and show it and move on to the next. Colossians 3.11 says it like this. After he's told us to put on the new self, verse 11, this this new man renewed in which there is no distinction, 3.11, between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So those, those old covenant distinctions are gone. Romans 10, please. Romans 10. And then after this, there'll be one more I want to show you. Romans 10. But each of these shows you that in Christ, there's no more distinctions, no more ethnicity, no more color distinctions, national distinctions. Um, you're just a sinner and needs to be saved, and you're either in Christ or not in Christ. Okay? Chapter 10 of Romans, look at 11 through 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That is, of course, believe in Christ. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Verse 13, for whoever who will call on the name of the Lord will be saved, whether you're Jew or Gentile. No matter what ethnicity, nationality, or color, or anything. You call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Yeah? Amen. Um, one other place. To the right, 1 Corinthians 12. Just see it again. The Spirit is making a point to repeat it, so we're going to read it. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 verse 13. Notice what it says. Talking about the one body. This is Corinthians 12's emphasis, right? The unity of the body, one body. He says in verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So all this to say, when you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, please, to look at our passage. Jew and Gentile. No more distinction far as how God would view them and receive them. 
doesn't mean there's no such thing as Jews anymore. It's just there's no spiritual distinction, no, no class distinction. Okay? Um, what a thing to be preaching today um, in all this racial, racial talk and all the divisions that, that are out there in the world. You, you can make up your own divisions and they want to bring it into the church. Um, we're not having any part of it. right? Um, you're either in Christ or out of Christ. And the greatest need for anybody is to come to Christ, no matter who you are, where you're at, and where you're from. So then in verses 11 through 22, we've already said in 11 through 13 is the need for reconciliation. And now we come to verse 14 of our passage here in Ephesians 2, verse 14 through 18. And here's the means of the reconciliation. And you will notice this theme. It's worth noting here. You will notice the theme of verses 14 through 18, which is the basis of this passage. It has to do with peace. Notice verse 14, He Himself is our peace. Verse 15, notice at the end of the verse, establishing peace, second usage. When you get to verse 17, notice it's used twice. He came and preached peace to those far off and peace to those near. When you look at verse uh, 15, notice where He says, abolished in His flesh the enmity, just another way of saying peace. Verse 16, he put to death the enmity. Verse 16, the word reconcile. All these things have to do with peace. Okay? This is the mantra of these verses. Okay? Paul then is revealing how you and I, how the Jew and Gentile are reconciled, not only to themselves, but with God. Look at verse 14. He begins here. The means of peace is he himself is our peace. It's worth noting and picking up that phrase. And he starts with Jesus Christ. And he starts with an emphatic statement. Because it would make sense to say, He is our peace. We would understand what he's saying. But he emphasizes and puts himself there. The word himself. He himself is our peace. What is he saying? That Christ alone, Christ and nobody else, is our peace. There is peace found in no one else. All other peace Outside of Christ is a false peace, short-lived peace, peace of the world, which means it doesn't last very long. The only peace that lasts for eternity, the only, la- the only peace that is established for eternity is that which is in Christ Jesus. And it says that He Himself is our peace. It does not even saying he's our peacemaker, though he certainly does that. But this is emphasizing his person. He himself is our peace. Okay? He himself is our peace. That's an interesting phrase. He alone is. Now look at verse, when you, you look at verse 14 and he says, he is our peace. We know what peace is. We know what that means. But the Greek language is so fascinating to me. The word for peace there, the, the, for instance, the verb, an action to make peace, is the Greek word ero. Okay? Ero, which means to, to bring together, it means to join. Okay? The noun of this means joining together that which was once separated. Okay? Erene is the Greek noun. I only say that to get in your mind, what is he meaning by peace? Okay? He is saying that that which was once separated is now joined together. And that is through Christ alone. 
you see, in his own glorious person. He is the source, the means of joining that which was once separate together. Okay? That's fascinating. Jew and Gentile brought together through the one person, Jesus Christ. And no other way. No other political thing. No other religious thing. No other other nothing. Christ alone. That same idea is used in 1 Corinthians 1.30 where these four things are said about Christ. Listen to this. Christ is our wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 continues to say, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. And Christ is our redemption. Okay? He himself is those things. So if you're in union with him through faith in Christ Jesus, he is your source of those things. He is he himself. Okay, all right. Now, look at verse 14. He goes on to say, how does he go? How does he reveal the fact that that he is our peace? Verse 14 continues with this. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Okay? He made both Jew and Gentile one. No more alienation, no more separation. Notice where Paul goes to illustrate that truth. Okay? He goes to the temple. In his mind, he goes to the temple in Jerusalem because that's what verse 14 is referencing, I believe, when he talks about the, the dividing wall, which is the barrier. He reminds them of the physical wall in the temple uh, in Jerusalem that separated the Jews from the Gentiles in worship. That wall was but a physical reminder of the Mosaic Covenant's separation, you see. The Gentiles could not enter the holy place, but remained in the court of the Gentiles, like we said earlier. The wall was a physical barrier, but proving a physical, uh, spiritual reality. Another reminder of the separate Separation demanded in the Mosaic Covenant. The distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus is now gone. Okay? All right. It says in 14 that he made both of those into one by removing that barrier. He has joined us together with the Jew. He alone has. And Paul continues to explain how it is that he did that in verse 15. Okay, how did he break down the barrier of the dividing wall? Look at verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. Fascinating. The word abolish. Key. This word means to render inoperative. It is to set it aside as is no longer in use. It speaks of wiping it out. It speaks of nullifying. It speaks of invalidating. And notice... He invalidated, he wiped away, he set aside in his flesh, in his physical body, his literal physical body, he set aside the enmity, the hatred, the malice. Okay? In his flesh he did this. Okay, now look at this carefully again. Look at in verse 15, he says, abolishing in his flesh the enmity. What is the enmity? What is the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile? What is it? Look at verse 15 again. It's the law of commandments. Do you see verse 15? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity. It's italicized where it says which is. So if you put it together the way it is in the original, it sounds like this. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments. 
In other words, the enmity which was caused by the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The law of God, the Mosaic law, contained decrees that separated Jew and Gentile. And man's sinful heart used that to produce hate amongst one another. God did not want Jews to hate Gentiles. He wanted them to be separate so they wouldn't become like them. So the Gentiles would come to the Jew to worship the one true God. But sinful man took those Mosaic decrees to produce hatred. Okay? Christ comes, in verse 15, by abolishing, setting aside, nullifying the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Wow. In His flesh, He abolished the Mosaic law and its decrees that demanded separation between the Jew and the Gentile. The Mosaic law, then, is no longer functioning according to its previous giving. Because of Christ. The enmity abolished here is the enmity between Jew and Gentile. That was produced by the the Mosaic's law's separation demanded between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, look at what it says here. In verse 15. Christ did this. He abolished the enmity by abolishing, nullifying the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Next verse, we'll spend more time specifically, but look at the rest of verse 15. The result of this work of Christ, abolishing the enmity, abolishing the law of commandments, is that so in himself he might make the two in the one new man. The apost- Look at this again in verse 15, that second part. So that in himself, again he's emphatic, emphatic here. He's saying that in Christ and Christ alone... Himself, the one who is our peace, He is the one that in union with Him, we're one new man. This is a new race of people. Think of this. Do you you see what He's saying here? Since He's nullified the law and its distinctions and now can make the two into one new kind of people that includes Jew and Gentile. Think of this. The word new here is not new in time, but new in kind. It's a new kind of person. It's a brand new kind of man. And the word here for man is not aner for male, but anthropos for mankind. So here, what he's saying here, in Christ Jesus, through His flesh, where He abolished the law and its distinctions, now coming to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, coming to Christ, Christ makes them, those two believers, Jew and Gentile, into one new kind of person, one new race of people. This is the third race, right? you got Jew, Gentile, now you got a new race. And the new race in Christ is Christian. Okay? This is what He's done here. Okay? The distinctions are gone in the church in Christ. Um, in Christ, there's a new humanity that has never existed before. This new man, the two made into one, has never existed before. This is a new race of people. Okay? Do you rem- Think of this. Romans 8.29 We are predestined to be conformed to what? To the image of His Son. So that He would be the first person 
born among many brethren, a new race of people, a new kind of people, you see. No longer Jew and Gentile, um, no longer black and white, no longer male and female, but one in Christ, one new person, yeah? Okay. A new race of people, no longer Jew and Gentile, but now Christian. Now, this is a glorious, think with me, please, this is a glorious reality that is true of every single person in Christ. Every single person who has truly repented and is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ is a new person and part of the new race. Not only am I new individually, but I'm part as of, of a new group, you see. A new race. That's awesome, <laughs> actually. You're no longer who you once were, but now you are of a new creation. Yeah? The body of Christ, Christ's church, is a brand new creation that has never existed before Jesus came. Another reason for a distinction between Israel and the church, by the way. Right? So, go to Galatians 6, please. To the left, just one book. Look at what he says. Paul's all about this. Paul's all about the new man, the new creation, right? He doesn't put lipstick on pigs. He makes pigs into eagles, right? That's what God does. (laughs) We put lipstick on pigs. God makes pigs into eagles. He changes their nature. He makes them new peoples, yeah? All right, religion is painting up the old. True religion in Christ is renewing so that it's it's totally brand new. Now, look at uh, 6.15. Galatians. For neither is circumcision anything. That's Old Covenant stuff. Nor uncircumcision. That's Old Covenant too, right? But what? A new creation. A new creature. From both circumcision and uncircumcision, that verse is saying those mean nothing in the church anymore. That's nothing. Now it's, are you born again? Are you a new creature? Are you a new creation? Right. All right. Go to Colossians 3, please. Paul speaks this way, a little, each one has a little different nuance, a little light more in each one of these. Colossians 3, we've looked at this once before, but I want you to see it now in its context. He says in verse 10, Colossians 3 verse 10, he says it like this, And have put on the new self, the new self has put on, which is being, notice the tense, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So this is the recreation in verse 10. This is a recreation, a new creation in verse 10, of which verse 11 says it like this. Since you are recreated in Christ and you're being renewed, verse 11 says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all in all. But it's the new creation, you see. Those distinctions are gone in the new creature. Okay? Look at 2 Corinthians 5. This one you probably know most familiarly. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 17. Obvious, a great verse. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone, and he means anyone, is in Christ, spiritually united in Christ, he is what? New creature, new creation. Yeah? The old have passed, behold, new has come. 
So it's not even rest, it's not even restoring something that's old and decrepit and giving it some Advil so it can run, right? <laughs> it's a whole new creature. It's a whole new race of people through Christ. That's awesome. That preach today? You're no longer black or white. You're no longer Ukraine or Russian. You're no longer Oki or from California. You're, you are either in Christ or out of Christ. And in the church, there's no more distinctions. Isn't that glorious? Unified. That's what the whole book of Ephesians has been emphasizing, right? We're all equally blessed in the spiritual blessings of, first, of chapter 1, verse 3, if you're in Christ. It's true of every person in Christ. That's, there's not the haves and the have-nots. You either ain't got it or you got it all. <laughs> right? That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. Now go back to Ephesians, please. So he's, he started verse 14 by identifying Christ as he himself is our peace. And, and then he gave an illustration of how that came about by uh, getting rid of that barrier and abolishing the hatred between Jew and Gentile by abolishing the law and its ordinances so that Christ can now make us one new man. Okay, thus establishing peace. The, the enmity of verse 15 is between Jew and Gentile. He will move into verse 16, and he uses the word reconcile them, notice verse 16, both in one body to God. Now the reconciliation that he's speaking about in verse 16 and 17 and 18 is our reconciliation with God. So it's between Jew and Gentile, and now he's moving on to our reconciliation, our peace with God. Okay, now... Both Jew and Gentile, outside of Christ, are at war with God okay, because of their sin. And if you remember chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writes this, Among them we too all formerly lived, both Jew and Gentile all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Yeah? Jew and Gentile are in that verse. Both considered children of wrath. Paul would write in Romans 3, 9, when he says to the Jews, do you think you're better than the Gentiles? Why would you think that? He would say, we're all under sin. And then he goes into the famous mantra there, where verse 10 starts, there's none righteous, no, not one. And he's referencing both Jew and Gentile. No one is righteous before a righteous God. No sinner stands before God holy in and of themselves. Yeah? We need reconciliation. The Jewish people, and I would think, the Jewish people were not chosen by God because of their virtue or their righteousness. Okay? It was entirely God's grace, and He chose them to be a witness light nation so that the world would look to the Jews to see how incredible God is. How incredible God is. See, not how incredible the Jews are, but how gracious God is. But they failed at that, of course. So then, in verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body. This is, again, the, the, the Greek language. I hope I, I stir you to want to grow in your understanding of it. And I don't mean to throw this out to, to 
be some kind of smart person because you know me better than that. I'm not very smart. But the Greek word for reconcile, now listen to this. The Greeks love to pile on prepositions. They'll have a main word and they'll put a preposition on it to either emphasize or intensify the original meaning of that word or they'll add it to it to change the word altogether. Okay? This word here in its base meaning of reconcile is to exchange. It means to make an exchange. To ter- and the exchange is this idea of exchanging hostility for friendship. Okay? That's the basic meaning of reconcile according to this word. Paul here attaches a preposition to that meaning, A-P-O, okay, apo, which this then speaks, emphasizes exchanging a hostility for a friendship so that you are brought back. The emphasis is being brought back. Okay, now listen, it means then to be brought back as in a restoration to a previous condition. Okay? To a previous standing, a previous position. Since it has to do with hostilities and lack of, the word is emphasizing, and Paul's using it here to emphasize that through Christ Jesus, he is, he is bringing back from, from this place of hostility and bringing them back to a place of peace. Or when was I ever at peace with God? I never was. But who was? Adam and Eve before the fall. So I think he's emphasizing that state of friendship. Remember they walked in the breeze of the day with God before the fall. I think he's emphasizing by attaching the words like he does that the reconciliation of verse 16 is that God in his thinking is gone after sinners, sent his son to die on the cross so that he can reconcile and even more than that, he brings them back into the condition that mankind was before the fall. That's good stuff. That's really good stuff. But look at how he does it in verse 16. He reconciles them both in one body, his physical body. He reconciles them, brings them back to God. Remember the end of verse 13? We were brought near by the blood of Christ. Here, that same idea of reconcile, being brought back, okay? No longer hostilities, but now friendship in one body, that's his physical body, to God. How? Through the cross. So that act of reconciliation and peace is through the cross, obviously. Now, as it says there in verse 16, having put to death the enmity. God murdered the enmity between sinner and himself through the cross of Christ. Think of me, think with me, and we know this very much, but it never get tired to hear that Jesus Christ, Son of God, God in flesh, though sinless and innocent of any sin, because he perfectly obeyed his Father, he's righteous in his character and righteous in his practice, He took on Himself our sins and our guilt and was punished on the cross 
for those sins as though they were his sins. You see? And on that cross, he bore the wrath of his father. You see? He is the whipping boy. He took the punishment that you deserved under the justice of God and under the law of God, which is the barrier, which is where the enmity comes from, because God is righteous. Here's His righteous standard. You do not keep His righteous standard. Therefore, you're guilty of breaking His law. Therefore, justice must be meted out, must be poured out. A righteous God will be righteous, and He will bring about justice according to His law, and He will punish you according to your sin in perfect harmony. Sin to law. He won't overpunish you and he won't underpunish you. It's perfect. You talk about fairness, there's fairness. God will punish fairly according to the deeds. But in Christ Jesus, as this verse is emphasizing, we have peace with God because that which you and I deserve was poured out on his son. And on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out. The, the, the law demands justice, and justice was accomplished through Jesus Christ. Christ accomplished God's justice. Christ's death appeased God's anger and satisfied God's wrath. He paid it in full for, for all eternity for those who would believe. Thus, Christ is opening the way to God for all the world who would come to Christ. Jew or Gentile, does not matter. You see? So the enmity, the hatred between the race through people is gone in Christ. And, and God's hatred of you and your hatred of God is abolished through the cross of Christ. Amen? Amen. Look at... Uh, go to Colossians 1, please. Yeah, Colossians 1, verse 20 and 21. Look at what he says here. Written from the same house arrest in Rome is Colossians as Ephesians, same time period. Verse 20 says, And through him, that's Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross, through whom I say whether things on earth or things in the heaven. Okay? There's only one way of reconciliation, and it's through Jesus Christ in the cross. Verse 21, look what he says. And although you were past formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, he has now, verse 22, reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Through the cross. Because on the cross, God's justice was satisfied. And he was punished in the place of sinners. You see? And the, the, the law of God has now been set aside, abolished. Hebrew says it's obsolete. In Christ Jesus. No more distinctions. Amen? If you're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters. Though we look very different and come from different places, that's been obliterated. We're one in Christ. Um, back to Ephesians. I'll finish this out. 
So he, he, through the cross, is this being brought to this peaceful standing before God by having put to death the enmity at the end of verse 16. And then he quotes Isaiah 57 in verse 17. And notice what he says here. He says, He came and preached. Okay? So uh, this is referencing His first coming. He came and preached. And the word preached there is not keruso as to herald, but it is to evangelize. He came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, that's Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. Notice to both races, to do- both groups is the same message. There's no distinct message, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's only one gospel, only one Lord, only one peace. It's through Christ Jesus. He came and preached peace to those far away and preached to those who were near. And then he will come, if you will look here, in verse 18. And he, he says here, Verse 18 is a witness to the truth that's just stated in verse 17. In other words, here's the proof that he preached Christ to those who were far away and preached peace to those who were near. Here's the proof. Verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Okay? Again, notice, same message for the two different groups so that through the one Christ... Verse 18, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. You'll notice the Trinity in verse 18. Through Him is the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. Interesting. Okay. Their parts played out there. Here, The reconciliation through the cross of Christ is the means by which we come to the Father, but it's through the Holy Spirit. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're black or white or green and yellow, it doesn't matter. eh? It's through Christ, through Him. And notice, the greatest privilege of a human, the greatest privilege that you and I can have is mentioned in verse 18. There's no greater privilege. I, because of Christ, I'll just pick on me, right? I have full access to the God of the universe. How about that? And if you're in Christ, you have equal access to God the Father. Isn't that amazing? We actually have access to God. Do you exercise that? Do you? I mean, I just thoughts come into my brain. The privilege that Christ has purchased on your behalf, and you came to Christ in faith, and you are, for a fact, reconciled to God. Just as much as the Apostle Paul. And you have just as much right and just as much access to God as He does. How about that? In fact, you have just as much access to God the Father as God the Son. Because you're in union with the One. Isn't that amazing? So why do we monkey around with all these inferior things? I have troubles. We'll go to this specialist and this specialist. You know what? Go to Christ. (laughs) Go to the one who not only can do something about it, but he actually cares. <laughs> he actually cares. Because right? think about this. This, verse 18, is kind of the end termination, culmination of what he's been talking about, which tells you, since God's in total control of this whole process of reconciliation and peace, because it's through the cross, 
That's God's plan A, right? Not plan B. The cross is God's original plan since before time. This is telling you then that also in the mind of God, the purpose that He sent His Son was that you would have access to Him. Because that's what He accomplished. You actually can go to Him. We have access, we, through Christ Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have our access, our entry, right? We have entrance, unbarred, unfettered. The door is unlocked, and not only is it unlocked, it's flung wide open. And it, not only that, but inside the one on the throne is saying, Come, come, you have full access to me. We'll look at this next week, but this is incredible. There's no greater privilege that you and I can have and exercise, then coming into the very presence of the eternal God and burying our heart. Praising Him, thanking Him, and burying our heart. Wow. I think the access here is not only eternally, but this is access today. You have access to God, the throne of grace. Hebrews 4. It's amazing. Two questions to finish. You who are in Christ, are you taking advantage of that door flung open into His presence? 24-7, wherever you are, you have full access because of Christ, through Christ. Yeah? Take advantage of it. Enjoy it. Cultivate it. Now you who are outside of Christ, let me say, you have no access to God. Because the only access is through Christ. There is a barrier to those who are not in Christ. right? Because only those in Christ can have access to God. So if anyone is here outside of Christ, can I share the words of our Savior in Matthew 11? When he, he, I picture him, I can't see it, and it doesn't describe, but I picture our Lord with his hands speaking out to people, Jewish people, who have been under the tyranny of bad leadership and wrong interpretation of Mosaic law. And the Savior says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and light, is it not? And I will give rest for your what? souls rest for your soul so he's not talking physical rest he's talking mental spiritual rest in my soul are you tired of kicking against the goads are you tired of fighting against God are you tired of exercising your alienation your hostility with God trying to be perfect in all your own strength stop it and come to Christ because his arms are flung wide open And I say that because there is an urgency. Either I'm going to die before He comes, but if He comes, there's a day coming if I die where those hands are no longer open. They're now like this. Because the same Jesus Christ who is welcoming me and is my Savior is also the judge of the universe. And He judges righteously, perfectly, and fairly. We don't want fairness, we want grace. (laughs) Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your...
Wow, your love and mercy that you've shown us on the cross. Thank you for taking our punishment upon yourself. Thank you, Lord, thank you for then delivering us from the kingdom of Satan and darkness. And now the hope that we have of eternity with you, entirely of grace. We praise you. We praise you for your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.